Good morning, everyone. My name is Frank. Uh, I'm one of the pastors here at Potomac Hills. Uh, if you're new, it's your lucky day because we are coming. Oh, right. Sorry. Children, right? Children's Church, ages three through six. Y'all need to be dismissed. Sorry about that, Mark. Uh, just really wanted to jump into the text this morning. But uh, so as the children are heading out to Children's Church, um, just a big quick thanks to all of you that uh, volunteer with the Children's Church. Uh, it is a great service that you're doing for the church and a great ministry that you're doing for our children and for our family. So thank you so much for them. And also thank you to our uh, newly formed video team and all of their labor as they're learning how to live stream. So thanks. Uh, to them. Uh, thanks, Jonathan, this week. So, um, But anyways, uh, if you're new, it's your lucky day. And the reason why is because we're coming to the end of a big major section in Joshua, which means that we get a bit of a summary, and so hopefully you'll be able to catch up uh, with us a little bit today. Uh, also, if you're new, please do stick around. Uh, it'd be great to get to know you, to welcome you properly. Uh, outside after the service. Anyway, this uh, this Sunday we're in Joshua chapter 11 and 12. So turn with me to those two chapters. Since it's a lot of verses, I'll be summarizing a lot on the, along the way, um, highlighting key verses for us. And so I really encourage you uh, when you go home today to go back and read through uh, both chapters so that you can meditate on what uh, the Lord has for us in these two chapters. So, uh, but before we do that, let's pray. Father God, we thank you. We thank you for this word that tells us about the rest that you're bringing. And Lord, we thank you that it also tells us about the fact that you're the one who brings it. And Lord, as we heard from uh, Amy Montgomery earlier, we pray that you would help us see you that we would see you, that we would be able to rest in this time of unrest. That we'd be able to see uh, your abiding gospel, uh, bringing unity and peace and rest uh, as we see conflict all around us and within ourselves uh, as well. So Lord, uh, speak to us now. Help us see Jesus, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. So, quick show of hands. I love, music, uh, I love movies, so I always start with a movie, generally speaking. Uh, how many of you have seen the movie Groundhog Day? Groundhog Day, great, fantastic, great movie, awesome movie, as, as you're sort of thinking through that movie. Uh, it's a classic about a self-centered, egotistical weatherman who gets sort of stuck in this time loop uh, in Punxsutawney, Pennsylvania on Groundhog Day. And so he lives the day over and over and over again learning all the ins and the outs of that particular day and so he knows when and where a kid's going to fall out of a tree. Uh, he knows when some ladies are going to get a flat tire so that he can change it for them. He knows everything about everyone. He even knows how to steal money out of the back of an armored car and nobody's the wiser. And everything is the same for him every single day. Everything repeats over and over again and for us during the pandemic, especially parents of small children, every day feels like Groundhog Day, right? Every single day feels the same, with the same walks, with the same questions sometimes, with the same conversations, 
about fire trucks and mailmen and that particular house over there and how interesting it is and the same things every day, every single day. And we hope that we will some, someday get out of this sort of time loop. But as we jump into Joshua chapters 11 and 12, we're going to feel a little bit like Groundhog Day because we've gone over this the last two, two weeks. Last week we saw Joshua deal with the southern half of the promised land and return to Gilgal in chapter 10. And the week before that we sort of saw his big climactic battle against the armies of the southern uh, half of the promised land. And then when we get here to chapter 11, we see Joshua and the Lord turn their attention to the north. And as I start reading in verse 1, I keep thinking, didn't we just do this in chapter 10? So look with me at verses 1 through 5. When Jabin, king of Hazor, heard this, he sent to Jobab, king of Madon, and the king of Shimron, and the king of uh, Akshah, and to the kings who were in the northern hill country, in the Arava, south of Chinaroth, and in the lowland, and in the, in the Nathoth, uh, door on the, on the west, and to the Canaanites in the east and the west, the Amorites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, and the Jebusites in the hill country, and the Hivites on the Hermon in the land of Mizpah, and they came out with all their troops, a great horde in number like the sand that is on the seashore, with very many horses and chariots, and all these kings joined their horses and came and camped together at the waters of Merim to fight against Israel. So sound familiar? A coalition of kings, check. A massive army, check. Odds stacked in so far in the Canaanites' favor that it's impossible to think that the Israelites are going to win, check. God on the Israelite side, if we read the next verse, check. Right? He says, God's promised not only to give them all over to Joshua, but to give them over slain. And so God is again going to do the fighting. So check even more. And seems pretty much like how things went in the south, uh, in the south, in the last, in the last chapter. And things go predictably from there. Joshua again catches the Canaanite force by surprise and utterly annihilates them. The Canaanite advantages of armor and cavalry and chariots are actually rendered moot because where they're encamped at Merim, it's really actually unsuitable for mountain warfare. And so. Joshua has tactically been very wise in choosing the terrain for the battle. But let's not feel sorry for the Canaanites. Remember how big their army is? They're as numerous as the sand on the seashore. And that language is intentional because it calls back to the promises of the covenant made to Abraham to talk about his descendants, that they will be as numerous as the sand on the seashore and as numerous as the stars in the heavens. And so this actually makes the Canaanite force a sort of anti-covenantal force, right? They're the, they are what sort of the Israelites are going to become, but except sort of the anti of that, right? But again, what happens? God wipes the floor with them. And so here's really a good rule of thumb. You've got everybody else on one side, and you've got God on the other. If God is on one side and you're on the other, you're going to lose. That's generally a good rule of thumb. You go against God, you lose. That's the way it goes, right? But to avoid rehashing sort of what we've already gone over last week, uh, let's sort of take things from a, 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 oh, actually, before we get there. Just as in chapter 10, 
after Joshua destroys this massive army of the north, what does he do? He turns his attention to the cities, right, and the surrounding lands. And what he does is he captures them and exterminates them in accordance to the Lord's command. Now, everything that Dr. Dave said last week about the destruction of the Canaanites and the sort of apologetic issues that that brings up still holds this week. It's still a judgment of their sin and uh, capital punishment by God against grave and big sinners. God is exercising his righteous, good, and just judgment upon sinners who thoroughly deserve it. And so, again, to the, we, this is all review, right? We've done this before. And so to avoid rehashing what we've gone over last week, let's sort of look at things a different angle. If I read all of chapter 11, which would take us like a long time because there's a lot of verses, we'd actually be struck by how many times we hear the words all, every, and whole. They sort of come up at like sort of staccatos, accents throughout the whole, the, the whole chapter to bring our attention to the comprehensive and intensive and thorough nature of God's warfare against the Canaanites. So, for instance, verse 12 says, And all the cities of those kings and all their kings Joshua captured and struck them with the edge of the sword, devoting them to destruction, just as Moses, the servant of the Lord, had commanded. And then in verse 6, God was giving all of them over to Joshua. Verse 11, they struck with the sword all who were in the cities. Verse 16, Joshua took all that land and the hill country and all the Negev and all the land of Goshen and so on with all the rest of the land. And then verse 19, there was not a city that made peace with the people of Israel except the Hivites, the inhabitants of Gibeon. They took them all in battle. And so over and over again, we hear the word all, every, whole, 20 times. In 23 verses, we get those words. And if we were to add sort of the negative of that, the sort of negative, all-encompassing words, the words like none or not any, as in the Joshua left none remaining or not any city made peace except the Hivites, we'd add another seven instances of words that can convey the comprehensive total nature of the conquest. And so as David, Dr. Dave said last week, God fought. Thoroughly. But why? Why is the Lord doing all of this fighting and killing? Was it so that the Israelites could have some land? Was it so that God could keep his promises? Was it to keep the Israelites away from the Canaanite uh, corrupting influence? Yes to all of that. And no at the same time. You see, those are all true statements. God wanted to be faithful to his promises, to his covenant to give the Israelites the land. And yes, God didn't want the Canaanites anywhere near the Israelites because of their detestable practices of idolatry and child sacrifice. But I think it goes deeper than that. It goes more, uh, it, it comes at a more cosmic level, a foundational level. I really think that it's bound up in the last words of chapter 11. Look with me at verse 23. And so Joshua took the whole land according to all that the Lord had spoken to Moses. We get those comprehensive words again. And Joshua gave it for an inheritance to Israel according to their tribal allotments. 
and the land had rest from war. And the land had rest from war. I think that rest is what is really driving everything. The biblical idea of rest is really important, and I think we could sum up the whole arc of the Bible by looking at the idea of rest. You see, we had true rest in the garden. We walked with the Lord in peace and in righteousness. We were in his very presence, naked and unashamed. But then we lost it with the fall. With the fall, conflict enters. Enmity between God and man comes. Enmity between man and the ground. Enmity and conflict between man and man. There is conflict in every kind of relationship we have. Cursed is the creation because of Adam's sin. We can't get along with anyone, even the people that we love the most, right? And we're alienated from God. That's the nature of what sin does. It destroys everything. Sin has a way of getting in the way of everything. Not only does it get in the way, but it strikes the very heart of who we were meant to be. Sin destroys the very purpose of human life. What, what is the chief end of man? All of those that all of you that have gone through the communications class, you should know this. It's to glorify God and enjoy him forever. We can't glorify him if we're rebelling against him. We can't enjoy him when we're separated from him. And so, as sinners, the only way that we can bring about glory to the Lord is by our destruction, our just and righteous destruction. But God was not content to leave us there in our sin and misery. Rather, the Bible is the story of how God is working throughout history to bring about a resolution of every conflict that we have. He is thorough and comprehensive. He's just thorough and comprehensive. That's the very nature of God. He doesn't do things sort of in half measures. He goes through it and he does it completely. He's working to bring, up, bring about rest for us in every facet of life. And so when we look at rest here in Joshua chapters 11 and 12, what do we see? Well, we see land, uh, the rest, the land had rest from war. And so we just get one kind of rest. Here the land had rest from war because there simply weren't enough Canaanites left to resist. He just simply wiped them out so that they can't, they're not there anymore, so they can't resist, so it's over, right? But God delivered them into his rest through his comprehensive and thorough fighting against the Canaanites. But while we're seeing a complete conquest, it's not a complete rest for two reasons. First, it's not permanent. And second, it only gives rest from war. It doesn't deal with all types of conflict that keep us from a true and abiding rest. Now, the rest that they, don't get me wrong, the rest that they had was good and important. The people of God are finally where they ought to be. They're finally able to live in the promised land of the, under the rule of God and to be free. After centuries of slavery in Egypt, a long and grueling time in the wilderness, and then years of bloody fighting to conquer the land, the people have finally have a place of their own. They can rest and live freely, worshiping the one true God, and to live in a land that is flowing with milk and honey. The blessings are, are abounding for the Israelites. 
they are able to finally worship freely their one true God. It's great. But I think in the grand scheme of things, there's still a lot to be done. The Israelites are not by no means secure. They've still got big-time enemies that surround them. Think, what's the world superpower of the day? It's Egypt, who they just, just left. And they're still there, just to their south. And they haven't forgotten what the Lord and the Israelites did to them. And so they're probably none too happy with the Israelites. So that's one big threat. And as we move forward in history, we see that where the Israelites are parked becomes sort of the battleground for the great powers of the world. The Romans, the Greeks, the Persians, the Babylonians, and the Assyrians all make the promised land their battleground their highway to fight against all the other superpowers of the world. And so while there is now rest from war, that rest wasn't permanent. And that's just talking about the external conflicts to Israel. What about the conflict between man and creation? Curse is still there. Man still has to toil and labor. Disease, bad weather, and dangerous animals are all still in play. Just because they're in the promised land doesn't mean that they're back in paradise. What about the conflict between man and himself? In Judges, which comes right after the book of Joshua, Israel comes, in, comes into conflict with itself. Israelites begin to fight Israelites, and so they've got, they've got issues just within themselves. And then finally, what about the conflict between man and God? We've seen time and again in the book of Joshua that the Israelites are great big sinners. Remember Achan? Remember Gibeon? Their sin needs to be addressed in some way. It's still there. Their sin still needs to be atoned for, for them to be made righteous somehow. And so in summary, what do we get? We get a lot of fighting, and the people get a measure of rest in the promised land, but it's partial and temporary. But it is something. And this something points to a more complete rest that we long for, a return to the type of rest that we had in the garden. But more on that in just a moment. First, let's turn our attention to the second chapter of our text this morning, chapter 12. When you go home, read chapter 12. It's a lot of names, names that I'm going to butcher, so I'm not even going to try, right? But let me summarize it for you. It's basically broken into two parts. The first part is the kings defeated by Moses. And the second part is the kings defeated by Joshua. And so we get this list. It's a simple list of all the kings that have been defeated up to now since the Israelites have come up out of Egypt. Yeah, a lot of names, right? We got the first two that Moses defeated in the wilderness, Sihon and Og. And then we get a list of 31 kings. 31. 31 kings defeated by Joshua. And so what is God saying in Joshua 12? I think he's making it loud and clear who defeated these kings. Again, he's just hammering home that point. Guess who defeated these kings? It wasn't you. It was me. God was the one who did the conquering. And there's no surprise there because defeating one king, defeating one army is impressive enough, right? But to defeat 33 kings in total is just mind-boggling. 33 versus 1. That's just crazy. Right? No chance. No chance without the Lord. 
And remember, these kings are kings of cities and peoples that made the previous generation of Israelites so fearful and so doubtful that they would win, that they refused to enter into the land. Right, so these kings are nothing to sort of sneeze at. They, they're not like sort of piddling forces that you're like, oh, 33 kings, they must have been nothing. Right? No, these were fearsome enemies. So fearful that they wouldn't even enter in, despite the fact that they had God on their side. Remember that rule of thumb? God's on your side? Good. You against God? You lose. Right? But they're so fearful of these people that they forget that most basic rule of thumb. And so in chapter 11, if we were to go back to chapter 11, the very end, there's a note about the Anakim in verses 20, 21 and 22. These Anakim just sort of get this sort of footnote at the end of the conquest. And what are these Anakim? Well, these are the giants, the descendants of the Nephilim that we read about at the very, like the first time they arrived in the, the, the promised land. And these Anakim were so tall and so big that the Israelites kind of wet themselves. They're like so scared that they wouldn't go in, right? These are the giants that the spies are like, uh, we're not doing this. I don't care who's on our side, we're not doing this. And these giants, what do they rate? They rate two verses. An almost, after, almost an afterthought of the northern and southern campaigns. God wipes them out in two verses. Right? It's like, they're like nothing. And these are the ones that made them so scared. And so what is God saying? God is driving home the point that he overcomes everything. Every fear, every power, every nation, every ruler, every king. And so the most powerful rulers and the most powerful people have nothing on God. But the application of that truth to the Israelites is a little bit trickier to sort of suss out. I think that the Israelites could have taken it two ways, both of which end up really in the same place. How do we take this list of kings? The first way would be to see it as God doing whatever it takes to fulfill his promises. Look at what he did. He did some great and amazing things, and so we can look forward to watching him follow through on the promises that haven't been fulfilled yet. Or we could take it another way. We could see it as God saying that the Israelites shouldn't look to anyone else but him. What's the point in looking to an earthly king when you could look to God instead? These rulers, these powerful people, why look to them? Don't look to them, look to me. Unfortunately, we know how Israel's history turns out. They look literally to just about anything else except for God. The only times they seem to walk in righteousness was when a godly leader drags them from their sinful idolatry back to the Lord. But when that leader in inevitably dies, the people backslide into their sinful ways. And so we end up in the same place, looking to God to do all the work of fulfilling his promises and to give us rest. We look to him both because we know that he is faithful and because we are unable to do anything apart from him. And so let's recap real quick. The Israelites have a temporary and partial rest in the promised land that foreshadows a more complete rest to come. That's chapter 11. And in chapter 12, we also have God making super clear that 
we should be looking to him to fulfill his promises because he alone has done this great work of destroying 33 kings and we need him to do it. But we don't look to him. We need that rest, but we don't have it. We need him to do it for us. We need to look to the Lord, but we don't and we won't. And so we're left with needing him to do it for us. He needs to change us, to give us rest by his grace. Otherwise, we have no hope of overcoming the true enemy that keeps us from rest, which is sin itself. That brings us to the gospel. It points us to the one who truly can give us rest. And we all know who that person is. It's Jesus, of course. He's the greater Joshua. He doesn't just give us rest from war, but he gives us rest from the curse, rest from conflict with each other, and rest from conflict with God, too. And Jesus said in Matthew 11, verses 28 to 30, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you what? Rest. Take my yoke upon me, upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find what? Rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. And so how does Jesus accomplish this rest? How does he do it? Well, he does it thoroughly and comprehensively and completely. Through living a perfect life, completely without sin, doing only what is righteous, and then giving it up for us on the cross, that perfect sacrifice destroyed the power of sin and paid for all of our, our, our iniquity. Through one man comes life and life in abundance. But there's more. When Christ rose in resurrection life, not only did he deal with our sin, but he gives us life as well. He does not keep that resurrection life for himself, but he gives it to us. And it's in that life being united with Christ through the power of the Holy Spirit that we find rest. It's in the life of Christ that we find rest. Remember how I said that we had true rest and then lost it in the fall? Well, we have it again in our union with Christ. In Christ, we are finally back where we belong, just like the Israelites were where they belong, temporarily, of course. Much more are we where we belong when we are in Christ. We're finally back in God's presence. He is with us. We are one with him. Finally, we get to enjoy him. And in Christ, we see, we can see a true and abiding rest. Do you see how Joshua 11 and 12 point to Jesus? They point to the rest that Jesus gives and the fact that, the, that God was the one who had to give that rest because we had no hope in achieving it. Our enemies are too strong. Jesus is the God-man, and through him he has done what we could not hope to do. He gave us a rest while fulfilling all of God's promises to us. And while we still see a lot of rest in our lives today, we know that the Lord will not fail to bring our comprehensive deliverance into the rest that he promises. It's just like Amy Montgomery said. We see and feel the conflict the unrest of this time and this age. But we know that in Christ, we do have rest now and rest to come. And so what is our hope? Our hope is not a, uh, an unsure desire that we have, but a sure 
conviction of that which is to come. And what is to come? If, we, if you were here in, uh, for Sunday school, we're studying the book of Revelation. And what is to come? A new heavens and a new earth. There goes the curse. And what do we see? We see that the dwelling place of God is with man. There goes the enmity between God and man. But what about the enmity between man and man? Well, we are one in Christ. Ephesians 2 says that in Christ, the dividing wall of hostility has been broken down in the very body of Christ. Because as I am united with Christ and you are united with Christ, so I am united with you. And so all those differences, all the the issues that we have with one another fall away. Why? Because my Savior, whom I love, loves you. And so I can love you despite all of our differences. Why? Because the love of Jesus covers over a multitude of sins. And so in Christ, we begin to see that rest come here and now. We can see rest with our neighbor. We can see rest with ourselves. We no longer have to beat ourselves up. Why? Because we've been made new in Christ. And we see rest with the Lord. We see that comprehensive, total rest coming in Revelation, right? When all things are made new, when every tear is wiped away, and all the bad things are made untrue. That's the kind of comprehensive rest that the Lord will give us. And even now, he is working in us as he worked in, in the lives of the Israelites in Joshua to bring about that rest. How much more rest do we have now in Christ than they had in the promised land? And so I think the call to us this morning is the same call that the Israelites have as they look forward to a greater rest. Do we trust in the one who has given us this measure of rest? Do we trust in the one who has given us rest in spite of our sins? Do we trust in the one who has overcome and fought for us? So Hebrews 4, verses 8 to 16 is how we're going to end this morning. In the book of Hebrews, the author is systematically making the case that Jesus is better than anyone and everyone. And, the part, and part of that case is to look at Jesus as a better Moses and a better Joshua. And so time and again, the book of Joshua ties Moses and Joshua together as what? As God's chosen servants, obedient and righteous and fulfilling all that the Lord had commanded. And they are that. But Jesus is better. The Hebrews calls us to look at the rest Jesus brings and to draw near to him. So listen as I read Hebrews 4, verses 8 to 16. For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. And so then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God, for whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest, so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, to of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, 
the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find, find grace in, uh, to help in time of need. And so, friends, Joshua's rest was partial and incomplete, but Jesus's is full and comprehensive. And so the question this morning is, are you resting in him? But what does that even look like? What does it look like to rest in Jesus? I think it looks like remembering all that the Lord has done for us. What kings in your life has the Lord overcome? How many of them has he overcome? How many sinful behaviors has he delivered to you has he delivered over to you that he that you might see victory? How has the Lord shown himself to be faithful to you when you were faithless? These memories help us hold fast to our confession that Jesus Christ is Lord. They are the remembrances of all that the Lord has done and fought on our behalf. These help us remember and trust in the only one who is able to deliver us into that rest that we so desperately want and need. But more than that, let us take up the word of God, which is living and active, that we might be transformed by its power. And so no surprise, we need to read the Bible. Why? Because the Bible is the account of the rest that we come into and the way in which the Lord is bringing us into that rest. It's powerful. Why? Because it lets us see Jesus, the one in whom we get all of our rest. It lets us see Jesus who is able and relentless and comprehensive and thorough because he is faithful and true. Every Christian that sits here today remembers or can remember a time when you were faithless. And the Lord would not let you go. And he has worked in every facet of your life to make him more like you. That is Romans 8, right? That we be conformed to his image. And so what is our hope? Our hope is Philippians 2. Or Philippians 1, actually. That he who has began a good work in you will not fail to bring it to completion. And so we can rest that we are in the hands of of the Almighty God, made one with him, that he is the one that shall make us like him. We are not our own, and that is my only comfort in life and death. And so let us draw near to the throne of grace and enter into his rest. Let us see Jesus, we pray. Bow with me as we pray. Father God, as we look at the completion of the conquest of the promised land and the litany of kings that you defeated, we can't help but marvel at the way in which you work mightily and powerfully in the lives of the Israelites, specifically your people, to bring them to rest. And Lord, as we look through the pages of your word, 
we can't help but marvel at the way in which you continually and faithfully pursue the rest for your people, even when we turn away from you. Until ultimately, Lord, you sent your Son, that we might have that final and ultimate rest in him. Lord, Lord, let us see Jesus. Let us see the way in which he unites us. Let us see the way in which he deals with every conflict in every facet of our life. Lord, would we see him and be united to him? Would we become more like you that we might have rest in you? And Lord, we echo the prayers that we have been praying so much this past year that, Lord, we pray that you would come quickly, not simply because we are sick and tired of this world, but because we desire to enter into the rest that you alone bring. We long for that day when our rest will be complete, when we will no longer have to live by faith, but that we will live by sight. And so, Lord, open our eyes, open the eyes of our hearts, we pray, that we might see you and be transformed. Open our eyes that we might see you, that we might take upon us your yoke, which is easy and light, that we might find rest for our souls, we pray. In Jesus' matchless name, amen.